Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. So what do we do in uncertainty, in uncertain times? What do we do in, in difficult times and in painful times? And how do we kind of reconcile that with our faith? And so I hope these last few lessons have been you know, helpful to you and, and beneficial and been a blessing to you. And today we're going to wrap that up with one more lesson and then move on next week with some things that I'm really excited to get into. Um, but, you know, we, we talked about the fact that answered prayers um, require, uh, you know, desperate times that actually need to be prayed over, right? I mean, you can't really... You can't really pray from the heart prayers that just move you and stir you unless you're going through something that the circumstance itself kind of moves you and stirs you, right? And, and a lot of times we talk about miracles and wanting to see miracles in our life, but really miracles require impossibilities. And miracles require pain and heartache and, and not knowing or not being able to find an answer on our own. And so miracles even that we pray for that we would like to see in our life, we have to realize that if we're asking for a miracle or wanting a miracle from God, we're telling God, okay, put me in a place that I can't get out of myself. Put me in a place that I can't fix myself. Give me something I can't heal myself, and then I can pray for a miracle. And so you know, everybody in this room, at, at one time or another, I think we've probably gone through these, these kinds of you know, pain points and, and, and difficulties and questions and doubts and, and wondering, what does it mean with my faith? And I thought that if I was a Christian or if I came to God, that everything would just be you know, roses, and it's just not. It's all the thorns, right? It's like, I, I got all the thorns, but where were the roses? And, uh, and, and just, it's hard to kind of reconcile that with our faith sometimes. But then we also know this, that God uses difficult times and difficult circumstances to get our attention, doesn't he? Like when you went through that pain and you went through that trial, nobody had to remind you to pray every morning. You figured that out on your own, right? Nobody had to remind you to pray every evening. Nobody had to remind you to call out to God. And, and, and so, you know, maybe during difficult times or, or painful times or uncertain times, you actually began to pray more, maybe pray more again, or maybe pray for the first time or pray for the first time in a long time. And everybody here, I think, could probably admit, if you have any kind of Christian background, any kind of, you know, period of time where you follow Jesus, whether you're following him now or not, whether you call yourself a Christian now or not, you're kind of trying to figure everything out, that that has been, I am sure, part of your experience, that you have gone through pain and you have gone through uncertainty, and those uncertain times and that painful time caused you to turn to God and to look to God again. Can I hear an amen from anybody honest in church? Yeah. We don't, we don't pray when things are good, do we? So, no, well, I won't make you admit that part. But anyway, so this morning, I, I want to actually start out with a verse, and, and then we're going to kind of go through the lesson and come back to this at the end of the lesson today. But it's a verse with Psalm, uh, from Psalms, and I, I hope you remember it today and, and kind of make this a part of your life as you go on. But Psalm 33 and verse 22, the, the poet there wrote, May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Can you read that together with me? Here we go. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Now it's kind of quiet. Here we go. A little bit stronger. Ready? May, our, may your unfailing love be even as we put All right. One more time without me. Ready? May your... All right. Give yourselves a hand. That was... It was adequate. I'm not going to lie to you and share. It was adequate, but it sounded all right. It sounded all right. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Hope. 
And there's that word, right? Hope. That when we are in uncertain times, the thing that keeps us going through uncertain times is what? Hope. That times won't always be uncertain. That when we're going through painful times, what keeps us going through the painful times? Hope. That, ho- that things won't always be painful, right? That when we're living in dark days and can't see light and can't see a way out of the mess that we're in, what is it that keeps us moving? What is it that keeps us, you know, believing and hanging on and gripping on? Like we're like that kitten in the poster, right? You know, just like hang in. in. Nobody knows about the, come on. Got that one in, no, I'm just kidding. I don't have that one hung up. But what, what keeps us going through painful times and dark days and all? It's hope. It's hope that, that things won't always be painful. Days won't always be dark. But here is the tension with hope. Because hope, for a little while, or maybe at the front end of it, okay, I can have hope. But man, when you're like in the thick of it, when you're in the middle of it, when it's dark and you can't see your hand in front, you can't see the next step you're supposed to take. Like, how do you keep hoping, right? How do we maintain hope when things around us just seem hopeless? Anybody ever been in a situation or circumstance that felt, that circumstance that absolutely felt hopeless, Like, there is no way this is going to change. There is no way this is going to work out. There's no way he's going to call me back. She's going to apologize. They're going to do that. They're going to come back. I can't control them. Things are hopeless. How in the world do you maintain hope when things and circumstances in life seems absolutely hopeless, right? And if you've ever placed your hope in something, or maybe you placed your hope in a someone, and that something or that someone just came crashing down, you know exactly You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Maybe you put your hopes in a relationship. Maybe your hope was even in a marriage, right? And that relationship you thought would always be there. You thought it would always fill you up. You thought it was, you know, there would always be reciprocation and and commonality. You, you know, and and then things just didn't work out that way. And they ended up taking, they ended up, it, it, it ended up ending. They ended up leaving and the whole thing came crashing down around you and you felt that sense of helplessness because you couldn't do anything to make them stay. You couldn't do anything, it seemed like, to fix it. And the thing felt hopeless. You know what it's like to ask yourself this question. How? How do I stay hopeful? When that situation absolutely seems hopeless, right? When you were promised something at work, when you thought that you were going to get a raise and that was going to help you move out of where you were, kind of bridge that gap, that jump, because you had to make a change in, in your circumstance. And, and so you went the second mile and, and you gave and you, you trained and you applied and you interviewed, right? And, and, and just something didn't come through for you or someone didn't come through for you. And your hopes were in that job. Your hopes were in that different career. Your hopes were in that different circumstance, whatever it might have been. And then when it all falls through and then nothing works out and you're left at the end with more month than money. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Like, how do you stay hopeful when life just seems absolutely hopeless? You know exactly what it means to kind of have this tension, that I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to believe in a heavenly father, a good, good father, right? I'm supposed to have all of this hope on the inside, but it just doesn't seem very hopeful anymore, right? Maybe you had an athletic ability. You did well in school and you thought you were going to get that scholarship. You thought you were going to be able to, to get into college, some kind of secondary education. Your, your future looked bright, but then suddenly just everything seemed to crumble underneath, and you couldn't go. You're not going to be able to go. You can't afford to go, and you don't know what you're going to do, and your future just kind of looms over you. Instead of it being promising, it just seems so ominous. And there's no hope and there's no way forward. And, and you had aspirations for your son or your daughter. And then you saw your son or your daughter get tied in with the wrong crowd. And, and they ended up being everything but 
what you wanted your son or your daughter to be. And you can't go back and give them their teenage years. You can't go back and undo some of the decisions they've made, some of the things that they've done in the past that they have chosen. And you are living with this tension. How? How do I still be hopeful? How do I be a hope-filled Christian when life and circumstance and relationships just seem so hopeless? And if you're here this morning and you're one of the lucky ones and you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's coming, right? Come on, tell somebody close to you. Just look over and tell them it's coming. Don't worry, right? It's coming. It's coming. Aren't you glad you came to church today to hear this inspirational message? Your life is going to be horrible at some point in the very near future. Like, you'll never get that in a fortune cookie, but you'll get that at church. Like, come on. We'll see you back next week. I got more for you, right? And then you just, like, and then you just wonder, like, why try? Why do I go on? Why do I do this? Why do I bother? Why do I call? Why do I apply myself? Why do I show up? Why, 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 why? Somebody say, why? Yeah, why? You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And if you've ever said that out loud, if you've ever even said this maybe in your heart, you know, what's the point? What's the point of loving when, you know, people don't treat you that way or treat you back that way? What's the point of committing when people's commitment doesn't seem to mean anything? What's the point of investing years into something when it just seems like nobody appreciates it, nobody returns what I have invested? And if you've ever found yourself saying, what's the point? What's the use? You have bumped into this question. You bumped up against this point that everybody asks, why should I? How can I maintain hope in a world and in circumstances and in times and relationships that seem absolutely, utterly hopeless. 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 Now, I want to talk about hope and what I mean by hope, and I'm not smart enough to come up on this with this on my own. I kind of stole this from somebody else, borrowed this from somebody else, but hope. Hope, and when we're talking about having hope or being hopeful, we're talking about that person or that thing that I have leaned my life against. Everybody say that with me. The person or the thing I've leaned my life against against. Like your hope is in that relationship. You've leaned yourself against that person. You're leaning on that person. Your hope is in that job. You're leaning on that job. Your hope is in that profession. Your hope is in your ability. Your hope is in your good looks. Your hope is in your intelligence. You're leaning on that. You're depending on that to get you through. Hope is a little bit like a ladder that you lean against a wall. And you begin to climb up that ladder, right? And, and, and it, what's, what's interesting about this, this phenomenon of hope is that none of us ever really remember consciously doing this at different points in life, right? Like you're born, and just without even thinking about it, your hope is leaning against your parents. And your hope for your future and your hope for your well-being is, is leaned completely into their ability or their desire to, to care for you and to love on you. And then as you got older, it wasn't necessarily a conscious thing, but at some point in your life, you kind of leaned the path, you know, took your ladder off of their wall and kind of leaned that ladder of care and of, of caring for you against your own wall. And you were going to care for yourself and make your own way in life, right? You started depending on yourself and, and your you know, ability to connect and your ability to do well in school and your ability to go and impress someone and, and attract attention and earn a paycheck. And all of us at different stages of life, we have chosen to lean our ladder of hope onto things or onto people that we think will support who we want to become. 
that we think will support who we hope to be ourselves someday, right? We tie hopes and dreams for our future onto people or onto things or onto careers or aspirations. We have all placed hope in something or someone at some time or another. Your ladder is leaning against a wall somewhere. You're not climbing on your own. I know they have those circus tricks where those guys can climb ladders not leaning against them. That's not you and that's not me. I saw you walk in this morning. Come on, you barely made it up the aisle. I mean, you're wishing we'd go back to straight aisles because you keep bumping into the chair. That's not you. You're not climbing up on your own. You're leaning against something. And, 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 and because we're unaware, unaware of it, we kind of go through life unaware, really, of what we're hoping in until something happens, right? And we usually begin to think about what we hope in when we become aware of feeling hopeless. It's not until somebody, like, kicks the ladder out from under us. It's not until the wall starts crumbling. It's not until we're in that moment of free fall that we start looking around and feeling like, hey, this can't support me anymore. This isn't going to work for me anymore. This isn't helping me anymore. I don't know if this is going to be what I need, right? And that sense of hopelessness, that sense of despair, that sense of helplessness, that feeling that when I lean my ladder against, you know, what I lean my ladder against is not supporting me anymore. I've centered my expectations in it. I, I built my future around this thing, and suddenly it's not working, working for me anymore. That's when you start to realize I may have placed, placed my hope in the wrong thing. And suddenly hopelessness begins to creep in. And despair begins to creep into our hearts. And you're not going to have children when you thought you would have children by. You're going to be 30 and single still. 35 and single still, right? You're not going to be able to retire when you thought you were going to be able to retire. Your kid is not going to turn out to be the person that you hoped or dreamed that they could be. You don't know if you're going to be able to ever afford that. You don't know if he or she is always going to be there for you. And it's only when the thing that we leaned our ladder against doesn't support us that we begin to think about this idea of hope and hopelessness and despair and pain. Because otherwise, we just kind of go through life day to day without even really being aware of the things in our life that we are hoping in. It's just there. It's in the background. And we don't really think about it, right? But it's when we experience that free fall that we really really start thinking about the fact that we are starting to feel a little bit panicky. We're starting to feel a little bit hopeless. Can I hear an amen from any honest people in the house? So what do you do? What do you do? How do you stay hopeful? How do you stay filled with hope when the world around you doesn't just feel broken, but is in fact hopelessly, hopelessly broken? Now, you're in church, so of course we're going to come at this from a biblical angle, right? We're going to open up the Bible, and it shouldn't take any of us by surprise that when you open up the Bible from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, we're instructed not to place our hope in anything in this world, but to place our hope in who? That's right, God. You guys got the answer right. We're supposed to place our hope in God. We're supposed to lean our ladder against the God that has invited us to call him Father. We're supposed to lean our ladder against this relationship with him, right? And so the verse that we recited a few minutes ago, may your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. This is where I place my ladder. This is what I lean my hope against, right? I lean all of my ladder and all of my hope against you. Let your love be with me as I go through this process, as I make this shift. And this is a really important point, right? Let your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as, not like once I figure it out, 
Not like once I'm there and I get my life all together, once I get my ladder completely leaning against you and not leaning on anything else, but even as I go through the process, because how many of us know that we're in process? We're in that, you know, just that, that struggle, that journey. None of us are there yet. All of us struggle with this at different times, at different seasons in our life. So even as I'm figuring out how to put my trust in you. Even as I'm figuring out how to lean my ladder against you, God, let your unfailing love be with me. Does that sound like a good prayer for anybody in the room? Jesus, be with me. Let your love be known to me, even as I begin to place my hope in you. Now, you expect a preacher to say that. You expect the Bible to say that. But even if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you've believed in God your whole life, especially in the United States, it's really hard for us to put our hope in the Lord because we live in a place where there, there seems to be a lot of walls that we can kind of depend on, don't, don't there? I mean, jobs and the economy and, and money, for the most part, we're good. None of us had trouble finding a meal yesterday, I assume, just by looking around the room. Everybody looks well-fed, right? Everybody looks pretty well-rested, unless you have small children. Everybody's got clothes on, as far as I can see. And I, if you don't, just stay hidden wherever you are, please. Do not come out right now. But we believe that, you know, we can trust in these things. I'm going to have clothes. I'm going to have food. I'm going to have shelter. I'm going to have all of these things. And I can even get educated, and especially compared to other societies and, and the conditions in other parts of the world. Like, we feel pretty good as Americans, so it's hard. It's hard for us to really put all of our hope and all of our trust in the Lord because we believe that if we have the right education, the ladder's going to hold. We believe if we make a few good connections, the ladder's going to hold, Right? If you marry well, that ladder's going to hold. If you find the right group of people to hang out with, that ladder's going to hold. If you save well, if you're disciplined, your ladder, your financial ladder is going to hold. If you stay away from drugs and just say no, your ladder is going to hold. If you do a few good things on your own, if you do all of that right, if you're really careful, then there certainly is something you think, we think, I think, that we can lean our ladder against in this world. It's going to hold. And we do everything in our power to put our hope in things that we can control. We are control freaks. We are control freaks. You guys are so quiet this morning. I'm a control freak. I don't want you to take control away from me. I want to drive. I, I just took Scott and Alicia up Santa Rosa. Who drove? I did. I don't trust Scott. He looks really, un, he looks kind of shady, right? Uh, Alicia can barely see over the steering wheel. She's so short. I'm like, I'm not going to let them drive anywhere. I want to be in control, right? But we, we just do everything we can to just put our hope in things that we control, things that we create, things that we manufacture, things that exist because of our contribution in hopes that our ladder will hold in those things. And if you're a Christian, then just for kind of good luck, you say, well, Jesus, I'm doing this and bless my ladder. Jesus, I'm taking control of this, and please don't let my ladder fall. You build up the wall. You, you know, shore up the wall. Put the support beams in. God, you help this company. Heavenly Father, please give me money, wisdom as I try to figure out where to invest my money. God, please help her to call me back. God, I think I have found a solid place to lean my ladder. I want you to help me out. I want you to come through for me with this. I want you to partner with what I have leaned my ladder against. God, bless that. God, bless this. God, bless him. God, bless her. And we're still leaning our ladder against something that is not God, but we think we're okay because we're inviting God just to be a part of it. But our hope 
and our ladder is still leaned against something that's not God. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And as Christians, we struggle with this. And as Christians, we get hurt over this. And as Christians, we cry out, why? And all along, what God is trying to show us is that we have leaned our ladder against something that is not Him. And everything that is not Him, ultimately, is going to disappoint. It's always going to disappoint. But God has been talking to us through the writers of the Bible, through wise people, people that have been there and done that. And God is saying to us, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, is I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how careful you are. I don't care how connected you are. I don't care how disciplined you are. I don't care how giving you are. I don't care how loving you are. I don't care what you own. At some point in life, you are going to realize that you live in a hopelessly broken world. You live in a world full of people and circumstances that ultimately will let you down. You can be guaranteed of that. And you can try and be careful. You can try and make plans, and you can try and get a good education and find the right person, but at some point in your life, you begin to recognize that nothing, that is no thing, you recognize that no one, no one person, nothing is secure in this world. And so God says to you, and so God says to me, you have to function in this life, but don't put your hope in anything that is in this life. Now look, that's sobering. That's hard, right? I was writing this message and I got a little depressed. Like this is just, it's tough to think about this. But it's true. There is no one, there is nothing in this life that you can 100% guarantee will always be able to support you. Nothing. No one. Turn to your neighbor and say, not even you. (laughs) Got really awkward in here. (laughs) Maybe I should have thought that one through before I asked you to say it. My bad. So, okay, let's give us hope. Let's move on before everybody starts crying right now. But I want to take us through some really confusing verses, and and it's in Romans chapter 8, and it's from a guy named Paul. I love Paul. He wrote over half the New Testament. But Paul, just to be honest, Paul wrote in a really, really confusing manner. In fact, one of the other writers in the New Testament kind of called him out on it. He said he writes some things that are really, really hard to understand. And Paul, certainly in Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 8, Paul is writing some things that are really, really hard to understand. And he's writing to Christians in the first century that were living in the city of Rome. And the city of Rome for Christians during the first century was a dangerous place to be. Dangerous circumstances, dangerous things going on in the city of Rome during the first century. And uh, Nero, the emperor at at the time, um, towards the end of Paul's life, had hated Christians. Nero had actually burned down like most of the city, half the city, and and blamed it on Christians. They had been expelled by an emperor before that, you know, some years before Nero. Actually, just been told, like, you, you're a Christian. Okay, pack up everything that you can pack up and leave. And they got kicked out of the whole city of Rome and had to leave businesses and homes and possessions and, and lives. And, and, and now by the time that Paul's writing, they're starting to kind of like trickle back in and try and pick up the pieces and they're fragmented and they're divided and there's cultural issues and cultural clashes and Jewish people mixing with non-Jewish people and there's a lot going on there and this whole Christian ethic and trying to figure everything out and they don't have a Bible yet. They don't have a New Testament yet. And so Paul's writing in this letter that we call the book of Romans in the New Testament and, and he kind of takes a moment to explain what walls are really worth or worthy of leaning your hopes against. 
And he kind of talks about the, fu- the futility of leaning your ladder of hope against our ability to control or predict the future, the futility of hoping in the temporary nature of this world. And he kind of wraps everything up with saying, this is why it's so important for you and me to put our hope in God and God only. And as, where we're going to start in Romans chapter 8, he starts talking actually from the book of Genesis, the very beginnings of the Bible that is described the, the, the beginning of all creation, the beginning of the human experience. He talks about you know, the fall of man, what we would refer to as the fall of man, the story about when sin entered the world and just infected everything. That sin is more than just an, an act. It's, just more, it's more than just a moment, but sin is like an infection. And, and the Bible kind of views sin as a disease, and it's toxic, and, and it's fatal. And the writers of the Bible end up telling us that when sin entered the world, it in, entered as a fatal disease, disease, and it impacted everything. It impacted human relationships. It impacted creation and the natural world. It impacted the animal kingdom and the weather and everything. All of creation, all of the good world that God had made was impacted and infected by sin. It was a disease that had infiltrated the entire creation, which means according to Genesis, every living thing eventually dies, which turns out to be true. Anybody ever notice that, that every living thing eventually dies? And so the writers of Scripture teach, and and Jesus taught, and and Paul talks about this. The reason that everything in this world dies and everything in this world is decaying is because of this root cause of sin that is just apart from God and against God and against God's purposes. And and so this is the basis for Paul's argument. Because of the decaying effect of sin, because sin rots, and because sin makes things crumble, it's always a bad idea to put your hope in anything in this world, in this life, because everything in this world and this life is infected with sin. And God has allowed sin to run its course. And when sin entered the world, God said, I'm going to let it go like a wave and its ripples are going to go out and it's going to touch everything and it's going to touch everyone and it's going to impact everything and corrupt everything and try and corrupt everyone. And so Paul was saying that all of creation, all of our world, everything we've ever known in our existence, everything we've ever experienced in our human existence, everything in our life, every relationship, every person that comes into contact with us and even us ourselves, we are all subjected to frustration because sin is running its course in the world. And you know exactly what I'm talking about if you've ever been frustrated with somebody. The reason you're frustrated with people is because sin, right? The reason you're fighting with your husband and your wife is because of don't say it, don't say it. You'll just start another argument. All right, where Paul picks up. You guys are quiet this morning. Romans chapter 8. So Paul's talking about creation. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. This is confusing, isn't it? In hope, everybody say in hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Now this is a thing. He's saying all of creation, everything we know, Every body that we know is, is in bondage. You're handcuffed to this idea of decay. Anybody ever heard of the law of entropy? It's a scientific thing. 2,000 years ago, this, this theologian starts talking about this, that everything is winding down. Everything is getting worse. Everything is dying. Everything in this world is decaying. Somebody over 40, can I hear an amen this morning? We know this is true. Everything, if you've ever had to go to the dentist and get a tooth pulled, it's because of this bondage to Twinkies and and sugar, and, and it made your teeth decay, right? 
and your hair fell out, and my hair is turning gray, right? And everything, and you reach a certain age, and every time you look in the mirror, you say, what's wrong with me? Well, nothing's wrong with you. You're just in bondage to decay. You're in bondage to decay, and it's kind of funny, and it's not very encouraging, but it's the case that he's building that everything in creation, everything and every one of us is in bondage to decay. Everything ultimately has the smell of decay, and as Americans, we think, well, no, I'm going to fight that decay. Again, I hear an amen from somebody. I'm going to go sign up with a personal trainer. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to push off my decay, right? I'm going to go and get surgery, right? Yeah, Jesus is right. Yeah. People, people talking about Botox, and nobody looks surprised. Right over your heads, right? People think, I'm going to go get educated and fight that off. I'm going to go, you know, I've got good genes. I'm going to go study hard, and I'm going to work hard against this decay. But in the end, at the end of the day, all of us, even the best of us, are subjected to decay. Think of the most charitable, loving people this world has ever known. People famous throughout history like Florence Nightingale or Mother Teresa or other people like this. Just incredible people that the world would want to live forever. Where are they now? They're decaying. They have decayed. Everything in this world, everything in this creation is subjected to frustration because of its bondage to decay. And Paul says, you know this. We live in a world that is in bondage to decay, and God is going to let sin run its course, and it touches everything, and it messed up everything. But the reason that we lean our ladder up against the wrong wall as humans, the reason, even as Christians, that we end up leaning our ladder against the wrong things and and putting hope in the wrong things is because we, at the core of it all, don't really believe this idea that everything, everything is going to end up in decay. We think we're different. We think we're special. We think we can beat the odds. If I study enough, if I'm romantic enough, if I'm rich enough or smart enough or strong enough or healthy enough, I can beat the odds. And Paul is trying to say with this verse, look, before I get to the good news, you got to embrace, you got to accept the bad news that I have for you today. There is no way to beat the odds. Everything is in decay. Every, everything is in decay. And yeah, you have happy birthdays, and you have vacations, and your engagement was awesome, and your first kid was great, you're not sure about the second one, and there's some highlights, and there's some mountaintop experiences, but the movement and the momentum of life, ultimately, ultimately, is towards sin, and it's toward decay. The gravity and the pull, ultimately, is towards sin and toward, de- toward decay. And Paul was saying in verse 22, in fact, in fact, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. It's been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. Men, you remember when she was groaning in the pains of childbirth? Or some of you blocked that memory out. She's just like, you remember when she grabbed your hand and she crashed, she crushed your hand with that Hulk-like strength and her jaw came unhinged and she bit your head off because of what you had done to her. Creation itself, Paul said, it's like it's in those, those pains, those groans of childbirth. It's infected by sin. And what you're seeing is the pain of your chaos. It's actually pointing to something better, but you're still living with the pain and the chaos. That pain in childbirth, it's a pointer to something better. It's a pointer to new life. It's a pointer to hope. But even though there's hope on the horizon, right now, it's painful. 
Right now, it hopes. Not only so, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Everybody say, we Christians. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And now Paul starts to draw a distinction between Christians and non-Christians. People who believe and trust in God and people who don't believe and don't trust in God. And this is why I think you should pay attention to that nudge you feel. Whatever it is that brought you here today, whatever it is that's making you think about re-engaging with your faith, this is why I think you should kind of pursue God and pursue that faith again. Paul is saying there's a new kind of force in Christians. There's a new hope that has been born in Christians. Those who are filled with the Spirit have kind of an early access into that future that the pain is pointing to. And we know what it's like to receive a portion of God's love. We know what it's like to see the demonstration of God's love on the cross and to believe in it and trust in it and begin to put our hope in it. And because we have tasted that, because we've had that little experience, because of what we've experienced this morning where the presence of God has filled up a room and in a moment we were able to give our prayers and our petitions and and open our hearts and feel the love of God flood us here this morning. Can I hear a thank you, Jesus, from somebody here? Because we know that, we groan too. Because we know about that, as we live in pain and as we live in chaos and dark times, we ache too. We can't wait for the day when our hopes are finally realized. We can't wait for the day to get the full experience of his redemption. This is not all there is. There is more that is on offer. There is more that God is going to do. We can get tired of the pain here because we've been promised a brighter day with no pain in the future. Can I hear an amen? We hate the disappointment of here because we know that one day we're going to stand with him forever and he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes and we can't wait to be done with the frustration and the pain and the chaos and the hopelessness and the despair and the tension. So the tension of the decay, the tension of the chaos, it creates in us a longing, a longing for something better. It puts in our minds and in our hearts This idea and this thought that there's got to be more than this. What I see and what I feel and what I'm experiencing, this can't be all there is. And Paul goes on in verse 24 and essentially he's saying, you're right, for in this hope we were saved. It was that thought that there's got to be something more. That's how you got saved. That's what brought you to God. That thought that there's got to be more to this life than what you have experienced. That's what led you here. That's what made you pray again. That's what made you kneel when you hadn't knelt in years. That's what it was all about. This hope was what brought you to the point of salvation. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? He's saying even this Christian life isn't everything, Christians. Hello. You're living a good life. But this is not all there is. You're living for God. But even living for God is not all there is. You're still going to have pain. You're still going to have frustration. You're still going to have chaos. And it should make you groan on the inside. It should make you ache and cry and drive you to your knees at times because it's all a pointer that there is still something more that God has for his children. And we have not tasted it all yet because nobody hopes for what they already have. There's more. There's more. And if Christians have hope, it must be for something more than what we already have. So even our Christian experience, you're promised frustration. 
You're promised chaos. You're promised groans and disappointment and pain. But Paul says you don't have to be without hope. And you only have hope if you haven't yet received everything that's been promised. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, this is the hard part. This is the hard part. But if we, have, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it. Yeah, you don't want to say it either. <laughs> we wait for it impatiently, don't we? I prayed yesterday. Why didn't God answer? I prayed last week. Why didn't God answer? I sent in a prayer request to the City Grace website last month. God, still broke. Hello, I'm still hurting. God, are you there? God, are you there? It's been a week now. It's been two weeks now. Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And this is kind of the, argue, the transition point in his argument. If we believe God, there's got to be something else. There's got to be something more. There's got to be a place where sin and sorrow and death is erased. And Paul said, Listen, look, you've got to be patient for that. That means you don't abandon all hope. You don't abandon all hope, but you give up on all hope that is based in this world. You don't abandon all hope, but you stop hoping and stop leaning your hope against things that are of this creation. It means that our hope can't be in this life because eventually hope in anything that is here will always, in some form, in some shape, it will always leave you frustrated because we live in a world that is in bondage to decay. But Christian, there is hope. But you who have received the first fruits of the Spirit, it's a pointer that there is hope. But there's just no hope down here. Your hope rests in an eternal Father. Trying to not preach too early. And verse 26 through 30, and I'm going to skip these, but if I can just summarize them for you, that God, Paul says, God understands your frustration. He understands your disappointment. He understands that your ladder falls every once in a while, and he understands that you're so hurt and so disappointed that sometimes you just kind of groan on the inside. And I love this language that he uses, that the Holy Spirit actually comes alongside, and actually we, we try and pray, and we can't even get the words out. And the Holy Spirit, he says, groans for us. There are words that we have or words that we don't have and we can't even do anything in those moments when we come to God. We're so broken and so hopeless and things seem so dark and so painful that we just don't even have the prayers to pray. And he's saying, yes, but you have the spirit of a loving father. And even in those times, you don't know what to pray. His spirit will come and it will pray for you. It will give you just sounds and deep something in your soul that lets you know that you are connected to the true source of your hope. And if you've ever been in a pit of despair, if you've ever hit rock bottom in terms of hopelessness, you know what it's like to get on your face and just groan because there's nothing else that you can do. It's out of your hands. It's out of your control. There are no good words for you to say. There are no good words for you to pray. It just looks like darkness all the way down. And God says, I see you. And I understand the pointlessness that this world seems to offer. I understand the sense of isolation. And so I will come to you. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, and you've been filled with the Spirit, I will come to you and I'll say the words for you. 
And so Paul, going on after these verses, he says, so looking at all that, and that's a lot to look at, right? And thinking about all of that, all of creation and the world and existence and the human experience and everything that's decaying and everything handcuffed to decay, anything you could lean your ladder against in this life already crumbling, right? Anything that you put too much weight on, too much hope in, it just can't sustain you, support you, ultimately it's going to fail you. But also, also along with that knowing that you have a father, not an earthly father, but a heavenly father, not a temporary or an absent father, but a heavenly father, a present father, the kind that's with us when we're broken, with us in our darkness, with us to pray for us even when we don't have the words. Knowing all of this, thinking through all of this, he goes on in verse 31 and he says, what then shall we say in response to all of these things? If we're going to sum it all up, And look at decay and and hopelessness and despair, but also looking at the Father that we have on our side. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the God of all creation is for us, can't he make new creation in us? If the God of all eternity is for us, then what does time matter? Because he lives and exists outside of time. And he is working to bring us into his reality. He is not limited by ours. If God, before God, the God of creation, the creator of creation, the only one existing outside the decay, the only thing that passed through death and decay and has come out the other side incorruptible in a risen Jesus. Paul is saying, yes, if he is for us, then who, who could be against us? But Paul, what evidence is there that I can trust him? What evidence is there that I can hope in him? What evidence is there that I have an invitation to lean my ladder against him? How can I know that he's going to come to me? And Paul would say, I'm so glad you asked. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. And Paul is trying to help us see that when God becomes the focus of your hope, and as you begin to reorder your world and place all of your hope and center all of your expectations on that heavenly Father, that that hope can never disappoint you. That hope will never fail you. That wall that you are leaning your ladder of your life against, it will never crumble. It's eternal. It's secure. It is for you. And Paul is saying, look at the evidence. Look at who Jesus Christ is, called the Son of God, the image of the invisible God. God come into our world in human form, born as a baby, walked among men, walked on this planet, showed goodwill to the unworthy, healed those that were sick, restored those that were in sin, forgave those that were in despair, erased somebody's past, and then on a cross one day, he laid down his life as a covering for us all, giving his very blood, the ultimate proof of God. God's love, the ultimate proof of God's mercy and his love for us. He's the ultimate proof that God is for you, that God is not against you, that if somebody died for you, then that person is for you. He's on your side. That if he stretched out his arms for you, that he is reaching his arms out for you right now in your pain, in your chaos, in your uncertainty, in your dark days. If that is the one who is on our side, then we cannot cannot be disappointed 
if we place all of our trust and all of our hope in someone who loves us like that. Someone who loves us like Jesus. Can you take a moment? Can you lift up your voices and your eyes, your hearts maybe, and just thank Him for the hope, the hope that we have because of what He has said over us? Sometimes this honestly, it feels, sounds too good to be true. Sometimes we just don't know if it can possibly be true. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that we have a hard time believing this, a hard time accepting this. And so he says in verses 33 and 34, who, who's going to bring any charge against those, who, those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns us? No one. God has chosen you. God is the one who holds you in his hands. And there is no outside force that can ever take you out of his hands. That God is your defense attorney. That God is the one who will answer for you. That God is the only one who needs an explanation. But God is the one who will do all the explaining. So who is there that will bring any charge against you? Who is it that's going to condemn you? Who is it? And he goes on and he says, it's Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life. He is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And again, there's this beautiful thought that when we don't know the prayers to pray for ourselves, he's already doing the interceding. When we don't know the words to say, when we feel so unworthy and don't even think we can bring that shame or bring that failure or bring that disappointment to God, when we are the ones who have broken our own hope, when we are the ones whose walls have crumbled, it was us, it was our fault, it was our wrong, it was our sin. Still, he said, the one who came to lay his life down for you, God's relentless grace in visible form, he is interceding for you still. See, we can't even fathom that. That doesn't even sound right. We think when we fail God, we're done. But still, His voice is speaking. Still, His mercy is reaching. Still, His, ah. Think about it. What did you do to earn God's attention the first time? Hello? What did you do to earn God's forgiveness the first time? then what can you do to earn God's forgiveness the second time? What can you do to earn God's attention the second time? What could you do that would ever make him stop loving you and stop reaching for you and stop hoping in you and stop calling to you? And what Paul is saying is nothing. He is reaching. He is always pleading. He is always interceding, always praying. If we didn't do anything to earn his love, if we were in such a state of hopelessness, handcuffed to our sin and our brokenness and our decay, then Paul would say, I've got a question for us. If you're broken, if you've lost hope, if you feel like you are beyond hope, if that is who is on your side, then tell me who can separate us from the love of Christ. And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. The answer is nothing. The answer, oh, no failure. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. I don't know about you, but I get it wrong most days. I don't know about you, but I need grace more today than I did the first day I believed. I need more grace today than the day I was baptized. I need more grace today than the day that I first came to believe and put my trust in him. And Paul is saying, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing that can separate you from his mercies. Nothing can ever block your cries for his help. Nothing can ever block your prayers and asking him to forgive and to restore you. 
Oh, come on, clap your hands, some sinners in this room. Come on, clap your hands if you found yourself on the short end of trust in his love. Who could possibly make you lose hope in a love that found you first? See, John would tell us later that we love him because he first loved us. We loved him because he first loved us. Not because we showed him love and so he responded. But he showed us love when we did not respond. His love was available to us every single day that we've pushed him away. And then Paul going on in this, this is where, if you're watching this in a movie, this is where the music would start. Gearing up for the big battle scene. Everybody go like this. You're painting that black stuff under your eyes. Come on, somebody. This is where you pick up your sword and you start sharpening it a little bit, right? Get your sandals strapped on your, your legs and your ankles. And men, you have to wear those funny Roman short skirts things. You know, you're getting ready for the battle scene. It's time. It's time. Man, that's a visual nobody wants, right? Just, come on, this is where somebody spits on the ground and everybody gets a mean look in their eye. And Paul, the guy that had been kicked out of his own country, the guy that had been just disowned and by his own peers and his own religion, the guy that had faced rejection, all over the world, been arrested and been mobbed and been stoned and been beaten and starved and been naked. The saint, the saint who just one chapter before they had written that he still had sin living in him. The saint that just one chapter before just complained and, and was heartbroken because it still didn't seem like he could do the right thing and it still seemed like he was always under the, the sway of the wrong thing working within him. The saint who called himself wretched and miserable, who groaned under the weight of his own failures, he asks, or he starts saying in verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present, nor your uncertain future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of this creation that has been subjected to the bondage of decay. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing in your world, nothing in this broken world, nothing in my future world, nothing in my career world, nothing in my home world. There is nothing, nothing that will ever be able to separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's a good list. It's a pretty good list, but you have your own, don't you? And I wonder what you would put in your own list. Neither divorce, neither abandonment, neither your isolation, neither your job loss, neither those hurtful words, neither that absent father, neither that missing family or the broken relationships or the failed expectations. There is nothing that can separate us from the what? From the L-O-V-E of God, the creator of everything, the one who knows and the one who cares, the one who can and the one who hears, the one who has never disappointed in you but prays for you, hopes in you, leans his ladder against your wall. There is nothing, nothing that can separate you from the love of God that we see in Jesus Christ, the love of God that we see nailed to a cross. The love of God that we see with blood running down and a crown of thorns in his head. Nothing can separate us from the love that would cry out in that moment, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The love of God that we see 
saying, it is finished and hanging his head and breathing his last breath in hopes, in hopes, someday we would look to him and see him and place our hope in someone that loves us that much, someone that loves us that much. And Paul would say to us, if you're going to hope in something, if you're going to hope in someone, then hope in something and someone who can never fail you, who will never disappoint you, who has always shown you grace and mercy at the times when we deserved it the least. Paul's saying you've got to lean your ladder of hope against something. You've gonna, we're all going to put the ladder of our hope against someone. And if you're going to do that, there's only one hope. It's enduring. It's the hope that rests in God and in God alone. If the musicians could come this morning. See, it's when we begin to loosen our grip on all of our plans and our treasures and our ambitions. It's that time. It's at that point that our plans and treasures and ambitions in this life loosen their grip on our hearts. And what does it mean? Do we give up in this world? No, it doesn't mean that you give up. It means that you love like crazy. But when you don't get loved back, you don't lose hope because your hope was never there to begin with. What does this mean for my tomorrow? It means that you serve people around you like crazy. And when no one serves you back, you don't lose hope because your hope wasn't there to begin with. It means that you forgive like crazy. And when people don't forgive you back, you don't lose hope because you never had hope in them to begin with. Your hope was always in the one and only in the one who can never fail, who can never disappoint, whose love and whose mercies will never crumble under the weight of your expectations and your failures. Mm, God, help us to put our hope in you and you alone. Do you plan? Of course you plan. Do you have ambition? Of course you do. Do you leverage your talents and skills? Of course you do all those things. You build things. You pursue progress. You save. You love. You engage your world. You do all of that, but you don't place your hope in yourself. You don't place your hope in your efforts. You don't place your hope in the outcome. You use your God-given talents and skills to accomplish everything you can, but at the end of the day, you say, my hope isn't in any of the things that I've given myself to in this life. My hope is in my heavenly Father. That is where I've leaned my ladder, and that is where I have placed my hope. Till the day when you're finally able to realize and say to God and make this prayer your own prayer, God, may your unfailing love be with us even as we put our hope in you. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Come on, say it with me. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Not once I get everything moved over, not once I figure everything out, but even as, in the meantime, in the day-to-day, in the dark times and in the pain and in the chaos in those moments when I doubt you, in those moments when I don't pray, in the moments when I turn my back and I step away from you for a little while, even as, even as I'm in that process, God, of moving the ladder of my hope from someone or something in this world to you, may your unfailing love, your uncrumbling love, your unshakable love be with us. Amen. See, whatever it is you've placed your hope in will determine whether you're able to remain hopeful in a world where things are hopelessly broken. So this morning, I would ask everybody, where are you leaning your ladder? Where have you placed your hopes? Where have you placed your hopes? Who have you placed your hopes in? I'm not saying you don't have plans. I'm not saying you don't have dreams. I'm not saying you don't follow through and do your best. But as you plan, as you dream, and as you do, and as you be, where is your hope? Where is the center of your expectations? Because one day, everything in this life is going to be shaken, and everybody in this life will at some point eventually fail you. 
But only when you place your hope in the unfailing love of God, only when you place your hope in the love that you have seen on Calvary, can you rest assured that you will never be disappointed. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.